I didn't get to say it earlier, so I'll go ahead and say it now. Good morning, church. It is a blessing to be here today, and I've actually gotten word that in two days from now, it will be somebody's 97th birthday. So, happy birthday, Miss Frazier. We are glad to celebrate with you. It is a gift that God has given you life that long, so I, I hope to one day be able to celebrate 97 as well. Uh, so we are here just a few days after Christmas, uh, so I'm glad you're here. You may have some family in town, friends in town, and so I think even to capture uh, what we've already been celebrating as a church, the advent of Christ, I think this will also tie very closely to Easter as well. And I was actually asked if I was giving an Easter message this week, and the answer was yes, I am. It is an Easter message, but it's also a message about humility, about the man who was the most humble man to ever grace this earth, that is Christ. And so if you uh, are going to be following along with us in the Pew Bible, it's going to be on page 825. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. So that's Matthew 20, 20 through 28. And it's on page 825 in the Pew Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, we buy these, one, so you can follow along in the service, but also so that you can take it home. If you don't have a Bible, we would love uh, to be able to give that to you today. So please take that home. And before we jump in, I'd like to pray. Lord, we gather today to worship you. We gather today to uh, open your word. We've already sung your word. And now as we read your word and we dive into the truths from it, from Matthew, I ask that you would help us to understand. You'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truths. And that your Holy Spirit would apply them to our heart that he would do a great work in us as we hear it, but then also as we go throughout this week and live it. And so it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So I did say that this is about humility, and it is specifically about the humility of Christ and what that looks like in the lives of his disciples. But even the opposite of that is greatness and the pursuit of greatness and, and the human, the, the worldly standard for greatness is not what we see in the scriptures for greatness. And it's not something that only the, the super prideful, super boastful people struggle with. I think uh, it's something that we all struggle with to varying degrees. And we even see that with pastors. There's a blog I read earlier this week. It was talking about two pastors and specific, specifically the one that was writing this in college, he was one who was serving in ministry already, even though he was in college, and he was, from kind of earthly perspective, he was doing well, but then this new guy shows up on the scene, he comes to college, they both are at a Christian college, and the new guy has a charismatic personality, and, and just people kind of flock to him because of his personality and his abilities to, to teach the scriptures, And then this older gentleman, only a year older, starts getting jealous. But they're friends at the same time. They're actually roommates. They would grow to be great friends, but he still is envious. And he desires greatness from what he perceives greatness to be. And it goes on, the writer tells, how God's done a great work in his own heart over the years to give him a gratefulness and how God's cultivated humility in him. And how he sees that greatness is not because he has a large church or a church that loves him or people who listen to him. But God's shown him that this greatness is coming through humility and a submission to Christ. And so I think we all struggle with greatness. Whether you're a pastor, whether it's in the workplace and you want to grow in your expertise and be looked to as one who's an expert in your field or the go-to person in your office at work. 
or maybe even you're a stay-at-home mom, don't you want your kids to look at you and, and think, my mom's the best? Maybe not necessarily even a bad thing to desire, but when that becomes our idol, that, all, that we're parenting such that our kids think that we're great, then I think we've got things confused. We've got things mixed up. And as we're going to look at Matthew chapter 20, even the disciples, the ones who walked and talked with Christ themselves, they too struggled with greatness, desiring to be great. And as we move toward this passage, I want to set a little context for us. So beginning in Matthew 19, the disciples in Christ are leaving Galilee. They're moving toward Jerusalem. And we find them here in chapter 20 in Judea. And along the way, making their way to Jerusalem, Christ continues to teach them. And he teaches them about the kingdom of heaven and what this looks like. And at the end of Matthew 19, he says, the first will be last and the last first. He tells them another parable and, and says, ends the same thing in Matthew twenty sixteen by saying, the last will be first and the first last. So both of these precede what we get to now as Christ teaches them even more of what this looks like to be humble. Perhaps not just the saying of the last shall be first and the first last, but then even what does it look like that I might live this in my life? What does it look like that Christ lives this in his life? So there's this great kingdom reversal of what greatness is. And Christ is trying to instruct his followers and tell them what you think, what this world says is greatness is not how I define greatness. So read with me in Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to them, called to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus, like I said earlier, is traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem, and he's got this crowd with him. He's got his disciples, the twelve, but he's got more than just the twelve. He's also got some women with him. He's got some other men with him, perhaps. And he's instructing them, and he's teaching them about this kingdom that is to come. But it's not the kingdom that they immediately think it's going to be. He te teaches them about the kingdom that's to come, but then they think it's going to come immediately as he enters Jerusalem, this place that for Israel was this center, or was supposed to be the center where God was dwelling with his people. And they're thinking Christ coming to Jerusalem is him making his way to rule again and to set up his earthly kingdom. But it's not like this, because as Christ teaches them, he's the only one in the crowd that realizes he's coming to gain victory through his death. And he actually tells them this, just the paragraph before what we read. It was the third time that Christ told them that he had come to die. And they still didn't get it. Even after hearing three times, we tend to be fairly dense. Uh, I think the disciples themselves were dense. And D.A. Carson would describe it like this. He says, despite Jesus' repeated predictions of his passion, that is his death and his resurrection, two disciples and their mother are still thinking about privilege, status, and power. 
So they do realize something. They realize at least part of what Christ is trying to teach them. If you look back to Matthew 19, Christ tells them that he will set up his kingdom and that they, in fact, will even rule with him. They will judge the 12 tribes. He tells them in Matthew 19, 28. And so they're so focused on Christ is setting up his kingdom. And they're so focused on he just told us. We're going to judge others with him. We're going to have this seat of honor. That these two disciples and their mother. And if we look at this passage just by itself. It might slightly appear that the mother is going before Christ without having talked with or knowing the intentions of the hearts of her sons. But if you look at Mark chapter 10, it's really clear that in fact these two disciples, James and John, who's labeled the sons of Zebedee in here, that they too are ones who are in this together. So it's, it's maybe even visually like mom's got sons by the arms and are locked and they're walking to Jesus together. And she comes before him and says, May I ask something of you? And she asked, may my sons in your kingdom sit on your right and on your left. And Jesus, not with attitude, but there is a firmness, I think, and and even a probing in his response. Right? He says, are you sure you can handle this? I like the way that the message translates the Greek in Matthew here. Uh, It puts it in in pretty plain English. So listen, it says this. Christ responding to the mother. You have no idea what you are asking. And he said to James and John. So he says to the mother, you have no idea what you're asking. And then he turns directly to James and John. And he asks them, are you capable of drinking the cup that I'm about to drink? And their response is quite funny. Sure, why not? And it very clearly reveals they have no idea the ramifications of what they're asking. They're asking for this place of honor, this place of greatness in the kingdom of God. And Christ's response is, do you know what you're asking? And are you even able to drink this cup? And so we see that It's quite ironic, actually, because James, in the book of Acts, chapter 12, he's the first apostle to be martyred. But then John, the last apostle to die, is suffering in exile on the island of Patmos. And so they, too, are not above escaping these consequences above this drink that Christ says He is to drink and asks if they too are willing and able to drink. And so we see even here that there's this true humility that follows Christ no matter the cost. And so humility in the economy or the kingdom of God, humility is true greatness. And we see this especially in verses 26 and 27 where Christ says, he essentially is asking them, do you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? then be a servant. Do you want to be first in the kingdom of heaven? Then be a slave. Doesn't sound like greatness to me. This word for servant in verse 26 is this word from, it's taken from diakonos. It may be a little more familiar if you've heard of deacon, right? So deacon can be used in a couple of different ways. One is the office of deacon. But that's not what is being talked about here. This is more of being one who is a servant. And so Christ is saying, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you need to be a servant. You must be a servant. And then this word in 27, this, it's doulos. That is literally, you must be a slave. You must be owned You must be subservient to someone else. If you want to be first in my kingdom, Christ says, be a slave. Not to your own selfish desires, not to your own desires of greatness and what you think that might be. Be subservient, be a slave to others. 
be one who serves others. And even in the context of, of, of this world when Christ is teaching the pagan and Gentile world, at this time, humility is not something that's regarded as a virtue. It's a vice. It's not something to be desired. And we see, in some ways, a small reversal in leadership today where... Uh, if you're familiar with leadership principles, Robert Greenleaf has, has made this somewhat popular in servant leadership. He's written a few books on it. And, and he, he would even say that this leader is one who, who serves, is a servant first and leads second. And I think this is a good model for leadership, but this is not the same leadership that Christ is talking about. Christ is saying, you are a servant. Not a servant first, and then a leader. But you are a servant. You are a slave. Greatness is not being defined as a dominant dictator or a charismatic cheerleader. Right? Even here it says in verse 25, But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. And so he's, he's contrasting the world's view of, a, of greatness, of a leader, with one who is this dictator who gives rules and expectations and you must obey, or this one who exercises authority because they're just very winsome. Christ is saying, you, greatness, if you want this, Greatness is coming through being a servant. It's laying aside your desires, your loves, pursuing that of others, serving them. Christ is telling his disciples to serve others because Christ him first has first served them. So even the desire or the... uh, the command to serve others, this expectation of Christ's disciples to serve is not just because Christ says, hey, this is a good idea, get out there and do it. But it's, I want you to serve. I want you to serve others because I first have served you. What greater motivation than to serve others because we first have, have received the grace and the mercy of Christ. There's nothing better. And in fact, if you don't fully understand the gospel and that you have first been served, then you're serving others may be even misinformed because you may be serving others that they would in turn serve you back. And that's not what Christ is teaching either. He's saying, I have served you. You have received this great gift of salvation and mercy go and do likewise. It is a privilege of service. It's a privilege of slavery. And many times, like we, like this mother of James and John, we ask for good things and we don't really understand what we're asking for, right? D.A. Carson and Matthew Henry both say this. They say to ask for worldly wealth and much honor is often to ask for anxiety, temptation, disappointment and envy and in the spiritual arena to ask for great usefulness and reward is often to ask for great suffering we know not what we ask when we ask for the glory of wearing the crown and ask not for grace to bear the cross in our way to it So we ask for great things. Even perhaps you ask for great things for God, like, God, give me a spirit of peace. God, give me patience. This was actually something I asked for not too long ago in my community group. I said, guys, you're going to be praying for me. I'm struggling with patience. Most notably with my children. Not much later that week. I happen, had an opportunity to display patience because I first have received the patience of Christ on my life. 
And so we ask for good things, right? Even today, your prayer may be, God, help me appreciate, help me to cherish your humility that you've, you've showed and you've come that I might receive salvation. Would you too help me to be a humble man, to be a humble mother? It's a good thing, but I would also say be ready. There may be time this week or the next. You have the opportunity to bear patience or bear humility in the workplace, in the home. Be ready. Remember what Christ has done for you. And so we ask quite often for the result and we fail to to take into account the road that we might have to take to get there. But it is worth it. It perhaps is being humble, showing humility in all circumstances. We perhaps may not be any more like Christ in any other circumstance than when we show humility. He showed us that in many ways. And even we should be humble when we realize, as James 4 would tell us, how fleeting our life is when we see how grand and how great God is and how vast he is. James 4 tells us that life is just a vapor. And it's not like this vapor that you've probably seen for the last few days because it's been so foggy where the fog rests for hours in the morning and doesn't dissipate quickly because the sun hasn't come out. This is a vapor more like a mist. It's here and it's gone in a second. Your life before God is but a mist. It's but a vapor. How could we be so boastful and prideful if we see ourselves as but a mist in God's kingdom, in God's timeline? And so we even see greatness or this desire to be recognized by others. We even see it in social media. We see it on the television. Some of us may paint a picture of how great and how grand life is with all the happy pictures on social media. And look how good things are. Look what I did last week at work. And paint this picture of greatness. But then sometimes we even see the opposite where sometimes the opposite is, woe is me, life is terrible. Look how hard my life is. I think that's even, in in some way, a desire for recognition. It may be the opposite reaction, but I think the desired outcome is still the same. Either life is great, look at me, look look how good things are, or woe is me, pity on me. I want you to see how bad it is. When it's somewhere in between, right? Humility is not, look how bad things are, look how great things are. But it's look what Christ has done. Look at the road that Christ has me on as he's forming me into his likeness. And sometimes we even privately relish the praise of others. Some of you may even think that, well, I'm not the person up on the stage. I'm not the person who's leading a classroom. I'm not the the big, exuberant, outgoing personality. I I don't really struggle with this. But then when you get the praise of others for serving behind the scenes, you really relish in it. Instead of relishing in how good God is and how you, in serving behind the scenes, can even image forth the humility of Christ. And so I even, even, even want to warn against even the subtle ways that we relish in the praise of others that may be hiding or masking as humility. And so even as we serve, we should desire to serve others based on their value as image bearers of God, but then also to display the humility of Christ himself. And so we serve because other people are made in God's image. 
we are created in God's image, but we're not any better than any other person. But so often we serve self. So often we think about self. And so this call to serve is not to think less or think lowly of yourself. It might be better said it's, it's to think less often about yourself or to think about yourself less. And we think about others, we cherish others, we value others, we desire to serve others because they are valuable as image bearers of Christ. But then we also desire to, to display the humility of Christ. And so we see that humility is true greatness in God's kingdom. But we also see the humility of Christ is your great hope. It's my great hope. The humility of Christ is our great hope, church. You have no other hope than the humility of Christ, that he has descended from heaven, not counting equality with God as something to be grasped, but that he came to earth, humbled himself in the form of man, that he might die for us. And so even as we look at this, look at verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so even as we look at the humility of Christ as our great hope, we first need to see a couple of things. We need to see, one, who is God and who is man? Because the ransom of Christ means nothing if we don't see our need for Christ and who he is. And so even from this short verse, I think we can see a number of things about who God is. We can see he's ascending God, right? Even as the Son of Man came, so the Son of Man was sent. God sent Christ. We see he's a loving God because he sent Christ, right? Your kids can probably all, all tell you or you learned it in Sunday school when you were a kid. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, what? That he sent his only Son that you may not perish, you may have eternal life. God loves you so much, loves me so much that he sent Christ to die. He's a loving God that he sent Christ. He's a serving God. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. If there ever was a being that deserved to be served, it was God himself. But instead of being served, he served us through Christ, sending Christ. He's a self-sacrificing God. How's that? He sent Christ. That is the second person of the Godhead, right? God the Father sends himself through the Son as the Son to serve us, sacrificing of himself. And then he's a giving God. He gave his life as a ransom. And if you were here last week, you probably even remember, Pastor Stephen said, of all people to ever live on this world, on this earth, there's only one that didn't deserve to die. But yet that one chose death for you and I. All people, whether they choose by taking their life to end their life, their life was going to end at some point. Whether they took it through suicide or it's through old age or it's through a heart attack, all people are consigned to death except one. The one who is a giving God, gave of himself, chose death that we might have life. So that's who God is, just from verse 28. But then who is man? Man is a sinner in need of grace, right? How do I get that? Well, Christ gave his life as a ransom for many, which should make us ask the question, why does he need to give his life? It's because you and I have 
what theologians call is the fall. We have suffered the consequences of sin. We too choose to sin. We rebel against our maker, against our creator, and we sinned. And because of that, the consequences are we deserve separation. We deserve death. We deserve hell from separation from who God is and the glories of being with him. And so that's why our God has given his life as a ransom for many. We need him. And we need him. I want to give you the words of David Brooks. He is a op-ed writer for the New York Times. To my knowledge, not a Christian. But listen to his words. No person can achieve self-mastery on his own individual will Reason, compassion, and character are not strong enough to consistently defeat selfishness, pride, greed, and self-deception. Everybody needs redemptive assistance from outside. From God, family, friends, ancestors, rulers, traditions, and institutions, and exemplars. You have to draw on something outside of yourself to cope with the forces inside yourself. He has so much right, but he has so much wrong. He's right in that he says no person can achieve self-mastery on his own. That's true. And he's also right in that we need redemptive assistance outside of ourself. Where he says the options come from, I would agree with one of them. I hope that you would agree with one of them. But it's not just assistance, though. We need one because assistance is someone coming alongside you, right? You have no power in and of yourself. And so you don't need just assistance. You need someone to do it for you. You need someone to redeem you. And it does, like he says, come from somewhere outside of ourselves. It comes from God himself. And listen to this. These words also are from David Brooks in his book, The Road to Character. He says, Humility is not thinking lowly of yourself, but accurately about yourself. It's an adequate view of your own nature and a realization that you are not equipped to perform the tasks that God has asked you to perform. I like that. Humility is having an accurate assessment of your own nature and your own place in the cosmos. Humility is awareness that you are an underdog in the struggle against your own weakness. Humility is an awareness that your individual talents alone are inadequate to the tasks that have been assigned to you. Humility reminds you that you are not the center of the universe, but you serve a larger order. We are ultimately saved by grace. I like that. The struggle against weakness often has a U-shape. You are living your life and then you get knocked off course, either by an overwhelming love or by failure, illness, loss of employment, or a twist of fate. The shape is advance, retreat, and advance. In return, you may you admit your need and surrender your crown. You open up space that offers that others might fill. And grace floods in. It may come in the form of love from friends and family and the assistance of an unexpected stranger or from God. But the message is the same. You are accepted. You don't flail about in desperation because hands are holding you up. You don't have to struggle for a place because you are embraced and accepted. You just have to accept the fact that you are accepted. Gratitude fills your soul and with the desire to serve and give back. Again, he has so much right. Listen to some of these. Humility is produced in us when we have an accurate view of ourselves. True, good, I like it. But then he undercuts himself by saying, we're underdogs in the fight against weakness. It's not just weakness, it's sin. It's not just that you are weaker in one area than someone else, but you have sinned against the holy God. He also has it right when he says, humility is an awareness that you are unable to adequately complete the tasks that you were assigned. 
you are inadequately equipped to complete the tasks you have assigned because of your sin. God doesn't just ask you to complete a task if you're a banker or or a teller to count back change correctly. God doesn't just give you the task as a teacher to teach the subject exactly right. God gives you and I the task to worship him, to bring glory to him in all things. Not just get the end result right, but even as we get there, to glorify him in the means of how we get there. And so it's not just completing a task. It's not just checking off our to-do list. But even as we go, we are to be ones who glorify God in all things. And so we must admit our need, our surrender, and surrender our crown. He even sees that, that we have a need, right? It's not in and of ourselves. And surrender our crown, take off our crown. You aren't the king of yourself. If we are to be humble, if we are to realize that the humility of Christ is our great hope, is my great hope, I have to take off my crown and see I'm in great need. That the ransom of Christ for many is my only hope. I want to give you the words of Paul. You've heard a lot from David Brooks, but I also want to give you the words of Paul from Philippians chapter 2. Some of it was read already. So hear this, what we should do, Philippians 2 verses 3 through 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but the interests of others. So that's what, as a Christ follower, you and I should be doing. Count others as more significant than yourselves. Husbands, love your wives in such a way that you are laying your life down daily for your wife. Wives, find some way that you can possibly respect us even in the midst of us being so messed up. Students, Children, you're not the center of your own universe. Your parents are given to you by God, not to just beat you down and smite you, not just to make you perform chores around the house. Your parents are given to you to cultivate humility in you, not so that you would humbly submit to them, but by learning to submit to them, you are learning the humility of Christ submitting to others, and chiefly, you're learning the humility of Christ, and that is submitting to him. And so I ask you, even students, children, to listen to your parents. Even when you disagree, even when you see faults or inconsistencies, humbly submit. Let it be a joy that you can submit, that you can in humility listen So that's what we as Christ followers should do. All right, let's continue on in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. How to think or how we should think about what we do based on who Christ is. Paul says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So hopefully you're seeing how the words of Christ in Matthew 20, Paul saying the same exact thing, put on humility. Jesus is saying, Pursue greatness through humility because I have given my life as a ransom for many. See your need for me. And Paul himself is saying, have this mind among yourselves that your minds would be counting others as more significant than yourselves. 
even the ruler of the kingdom, that is Christ, is following the ways of the kingdom, that is living in humility. Christ put on humility, taking the form of a servant. He died on the cross. We have no greater gift than to see his ransom is for many. It is for you and I. And I even want to take this time for a guest or even perhaps someone who's been attending here for a while. If you have not received this gift, it's a free gift. You can't do anything to receive it. Even if I go back to the words of David Brooks, he would say, say that you accept this gift. This gift you get outside of yourselves, it's a gift that you receive. And so take it and accept it. Take today Christ, his ransom for many. Accept Christ as your ransom. You have no greater hope than the humility of Christ himself. So I want to ask you to be humble to see your need for Christ. Let's continue on in Philippians 9 through 11. He says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So what just happened? We read in 5 through 8, Paul talking about how Christ humbled himself, not counting equality with God as something to be grasped, but he humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant and being obedient to death. And so here's the response. What does God do? God highly exalted Christ, bestowed upon him the name that is above all names, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. And so Christ, the one who deserves all praise, the one who deserves all worship, humbled himself, becoming the least of these. He humbled himself so low that he is the least. He is the last. And God the Father exalts him to have the name above all names. God will, will raise up those who humble themselves. In God's economy, in God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, greatness is defined in humility. And so those who humble themselves will be exalted by God, not by self. And so I even want to leave us with some practical ways that maybe we can cultivate humility. That is, we can pray for it. We can ask God for it. You can even ask others to pray that for you. So I think we could even pray that, that God would not just uh, cause us to have a humility, like I've already said, that, that thinks less of ourselves, as in poor, pitiful, terrible Josh, poor, pitiful, terrible you, but that God would cultivate in us a God-centered humility that, that boasts in Christ, that boasts of God and his work in us. And then we can also pray that God would prepare us for the road that is to come as we seek humility. So we can pray. Then second, we can consider other, others better than ourselves, not just in our minds, but even so much so that it actually causes us to live this, right? It's one thing to think it, to know it in our head. It's another thing to actually take action on it. And to take action on it means you're actually probably going to have to rearrange your schedule to serve others. Your Friday night may be wrecked because you get a phone call from a friend crying in need of help and counsel. And so you just put all of life on pause for the friend who's in need of encouragement by Christ through you. And so it's, it's praying, but it's, it's also taking action. But I think also another thing is that if the humility of Christ is our hope, 
He's the hope of the nations as well. And so therefore we should receive Christ and we should go out and make disciples. We should share the humility of Christ with the nations. I would even like to challenge you to consider how you can give of your time either in retirement or how you can give of your time through vacation. Can you and your family give up a week's of vacation to go tell the nations about Christ? Our church this year has a, a number of opportunities. One is with Ghana. We're taking two trips to Ghana. But then also, we've been doing for a long time as a church, taking the humility of Christ to the nations in Eagle Butte. So I even want to encourage you as a family, not just you as an adult, but could you and your family go to Eagle Butte? In case you're wondering when the dates are, they're July 22nd through the 30th. Unashamed plug. See Scott Freiberg after the service. We who have been shown this great humility and the ransom been extended to us, if we truly understand this ransom for us and the costliness of it, it's not even a sacrifice to give up a week's of vacation to go tell the nations about this Christ who has humbled himself for us. And so would you even consider giving up some vacation time? And then also, I know that I said that in verse 26, this diakonos, the Greek word that we use for deacon, is not about the office of deacon, but it's about the act of serving, of being a servant. But I, th I also think it is good for us to recognize we have deacons. These are ones who lead us in serving. Doesn't mean that they're the only servants of the church. They're the ones who lead the church in serving. And so we as a church can look to our deacons as ones who lead us in serving. And so I want to even take time now. I want to just list these names in case you don't know them. Uh, some of them are current deacons. Some of them uh, will be rotating off at the end of this year. And some of them uh, have, have stepped on as deacons to serve. And so I'm just going to list. These are 16 men and women that lead us in serving. And perhaps you could even pray for them today at lunch before you eat. Uh, their names are Mark Cochran, Stephen Caldwell, Barbara Chauncey, Will Cockrell, Linda Hackney, Brian Stone, Bill Tisdale, Paul Brower, Bill McKay, Alan Case, Robin Presser, Chris Endrickon, Kevin Jewell, John Blakicki, Ray Crawbuck, and Ben Cochran. These are men and women who lead us in serving. They serve you. They check in with you. They pray for you. I have no doubts they pray for you. I even get requests that you guys make of them for prayer. And so I even want to ask you to be praying for your deacons, the ones who serve you, who love you. And so I want to warn us today, one, even in the disciples that we saw in Matthew chapter 20, there's a desire for greatness and pride, perhaps seeking honor, and so I want us to be wary, be aware that even in all of us, I think even in possibly the most humble of us, there are even hints of pride. There are desires for honor and greatness that we seek for the promotion of self. So be wary of that. And here are the words of one pastor. He says, Jesus has forever been Lord and forever will be but when he left glory for earth, he traded the sounds of angels' songs for the insults of sinful men. He exchanged the heaven-tuned chorus for hell-tainted cursing. This is the humility of our Christ, our hope. And so humility in the kingdom of God is greatness. And may we see the humility of Christ and his giving of his life as a ransom for many. Would you pray with me?
God, would you use your word today to expose in all of us selfish desires of of honor and greatness? Would you expose sinful hearts, hearts that seek self above God? Would you give us, as a church, humility? Would you make us a church in our community that is known to display the humility of Christ? Not to say, look at us, but to say, look at our Christ. Look at the one who has given his life as a ransom for many, that we can have life in him, and that we hold out that humility for all to see. That is the hope of nations, the humility of Christ, his descending to earth to live a perfect life, to die a cruel death, to rise from the grave that we might have life in him. And I even want to pray now for our deacons who lead us in serving. Pray that you would be with them that you would continue to show them how they can better serve this church, this body? And would you give us eyes to take notice of how they serve, not to promote them, but to uh, recognize and even be challenged by the way that they serve, that we too might serve others in a like manner. So I thank you for our deacons. I thank you for their life for the display of humility that they have before us as a church. Would you work in your people a great humility because we've received the greatest gift and that is the humility of Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.